Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're beginning the book 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Bate, published by Thomas Nelson and Sons in 1922. And we're starting with the foreword and then chapter one. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing and keep these rare nautical books in circulation. Let's get on with the story. Forward. Since Francis Drake went round the world in the Golden Hind, there has perhaps been no voyage quite so venturesome as that in a little French fishing catch of 45 tons called the J.B. Charcot, which set out from Boulogne in September of the year 1907 and sailing across the South Atlantic and the Antarctic and Indian seas, lay to outside Melbourne Harbour in July 1908, a distance of 15,000 miles. She was commanded by two young Frenchmen, hardly more than boys in age, though captains in the French merchant service, named Raymond and Henry de Bate, and she carried a tiny crew of one seaman and three lads. When, a little while ago, Captain Raymond Rallier de Bate was welcomed home by the French Geographical Society, Prince Roland Bonaparte, its president, summed up the voyage in the following words. You are 16th century adventurers, he said, who have been lost in the 20th. The story of their remarkable trip in the little J.B. Charcot, named after the famous French explorer who has just returned from the Antarctic, as written by the leader of the expedition, is a true and vivid tale of romance and adventure which carries one back to the youth of the world, when men first began to venture out into unknown seas in frail craft. With high spirits, full of French gaiety, he tells of terrific storms encountered by his fishing boat, and of the many hardships which they have faced with brave hearts. Chapter 1 Thus, having said, he bids us put to sea, we loose from shore our horses and obey, and soon with swelling sails pursue our watery way. Virgil I tell a tale of the sea. It is a tale of a small sailing boat and of six men, of whom I was one, and of a long voyage, and of many strange adventures in lonely places off the track of the world's highways. As a plain seaman, I write, without pretense of literary art and grace, yet able to put down the straight, simple truth of the things I have seen and of the things that happened. As I write, my memory goes back to those two years of wandering, and I live again through all the experiences of the days of those years. And on the blank pages of this paper before me, I see the wild scenery of a desert island, the great immensity of storm-lashed seas, the familiar faces of my comrades. Old voices speak to me, the voices of the wind and ocean, of seabirds and sea beasts, of the friends who went on the long, lone trail with me. It is a strange thing, this craft of penmanship, to which I am unaccustomed. It brings back the thrill and the life of days that have passed. Perhaps those who read my tale will be quickened to the sense of the realities that lie behind the written words. I am going, then, to tell the story of my voyaging for nearly two years, from September 1907 to the end of July 1909, in a small French fishing catch, the J.B. Charcot, from Boulogne to Melbourne, a distance in our somewhat zigzag course 
of 15,000 miles. There have been other sailing ships which have gone longer voyages than that many times, but I suppose since the great English seaman Sir Francis Drake went round the world in the Golden Hind, no boat so small and so modestly equipped and with such a tiny crew has ventured across the Atlantic and Indian oceans, facing the perils and suffering the hardships which are inevitable to such a voyage. I make no claim to fame for having sailed in so small a boat, for I frankly confess that if I could have scraped up more money, I would have bought a bigger and a better ship. Not that I have anything but affectionate memories of the dear little J.B. Charcot, which served us sturdily and bravely through many a wild storm, and at times when even the largest ship afloat would have been glad to run for shelter. But it was the smallness of the boat which makes our adventure unusual, and to other people almost laughable. I also laugh now and find amusement in the poverty-stricken way in which we set out on this voyage of exploration. It was no laughing matter when we were caught a hundred times in hurricanes which threatened to smash our timbers and did actually drive us three times onto the rocks. The results of the expedition were not epoch-making. We did not bring back news of having discovered the North Pole or the South Pole. That was not our ambition. Nevertheless, we explored many unknown islands and mapped many uncharted coasts and hidden reefs and made a great number of soundings in narrow straits strewn with rocks by which my fellow sailors of all nations will benefit when they may pass that way. We also brought back a good many specimens, geological, botanical and entomological, new to the museums, so that in a scientific way the results of the little trip were interesting. But this story is addressed more to the general reader than to the sailor and the scientist, and I am about to tell the story of my adventures rather than of my discoveries. People are still interested in the romance of the sea. I remember with what excitement I have read all such stories from Robinson Crusoe downwards. My narrative may be read in the same spirit. We were six men on board, the little J.B. Charcot, and for many long months we saw no other human beings and led a strange, lonely, but not miserable life. After our voyage for 4,000 miles to Tristan da Cunha, that island midway between South Africa and South America, upon which is the most curious and interesting and solitary little community of English-speaking people in the world, we sailed again through many terrible storms without the sight of another ship until we came to Kerguelen of the Island of Desolation, as it is called by American sealers. Upon that great group of barren, desolate, uninhabited islands, we lived for many months, quite alone. It was truly a Robinson Crusoe kind of existence, and people at home who sleep in soft beds and eat good food every day, but whose imagination is fired by the romance of a hard, adventurous life, may find interest and amusement in the plain, unvarnished tale of how we spent our time, how we, six good comrades, cut off from civilization and thrown upon our own society, face the daily dangers and hardships of our lot. How we obtained food, how we kept our sanity and self-respect in the long loneliness, how we came very close to nature in its wildest and most primitive conditions. How, after many months, we met good friends with news from the outer world and with the little luxuries for which some of us had yearned. And how finally we left the desert islands and sailed through terrific tempests on the long track to Australia where the sight of the little French catch from Boulogne-sur-Mer was hailed with astonishment in Melbourne Harbour. That is my story, 
and the details of it are not, I hope, dull. To us at the time, each little incident was exciting. From each peril we escaped with praise and thankfulness at our good luck. Perhaps people who read this book will realise some of our own emotions and, in imagination, share some of the impressions of our life. To start with, I must introduce myself in a few words to the reader. I was 25 years old when I bought the J.B. Charcot, and I had not yet got my certificate as Capitaine au long cours, captain in the merchant service, which I now possess. But I knew the sea pretty well. The sea was in my blood, for I had been born on the coast of Brittany at Lorient, within sound of the waves, and my people belonged to the sea. My father was a commander in the French Navy, my uncle was an admiral, many of my ancestors had gone down to the sea in ships. As boys, my brothers and I were always boating and swimming, and though I said nothing about my ambitions for many years, I knew that I could not avoid the family spell. Curiously enough, my father and mother did not understand this. I was sent to a Jesuit college, and being of a serious, quiet nature, they had the idea that I should become a magistrate. I smile now at the thought that, but for my blood, I might have been a grave and learned person in a black gown and a square cap. One day, when I was 18 years of age, my father came to me and said, Raymond, it is time you began to think of your career. What are you going to be? I looked up and said very simply, I'm going to be a sailor, father. He was astonished. But it's too late for the Navy, my son. Yes, but there is still the merchant service, I said. My father was shocked. There is a great gulf between the two branches of seamanship. The bridge has not yet been built that can cross such a gulf. But I had my way, and as a sailor before the mast, I made a voyage round the world in a big sailing ship. After some years at sea, I was lucky in getting appointed as mate to Dr. Charcot's Antarctic expedition of 1903 to 1905. That was my first experience of Antarctic exploration, and in spite of the hardships, and there were times when it was not altogether a picnic, you must understand, I was fired with the ambition to continue in this line of work. Dr. Charcot was a gallant and a generous leader, and a source of continual inspiration to the men who served with him. He is still my great hero, and it is the proudest fact of my life that I was permitted to share, in a humble way, the great work of that expedition. But afterwards, being, as you know, a very young man, and therefore a little ambitious, I kept wondering what I could do on my own account in the way of exploration. It seemed to me that it would be a very excellent idea if I set out to discover something. But there was one little trouble. I was a poor man. My poverty was really most embarrassing to my ambitions. But I had some small savings, and I had a brother with a few pounds also. He was a sailor, like myself, and in the merchant service, and when... After a good deal of silent thought, I put my idea before him. He was not at all unsympathetic. My idea was to lead an expedition to Kerguelen, that collection of barren islands in the Indian Ocean. I had often heard of it as an old haunt of sealers, but I knew that it was now uninhabited and that it was to a great extent uncharted. It seemed to me that if by hook or by crook we could get a small boat of our own, it would be a merry adventure to get across the world from France to Australia, exploring the island of desolation on our way. There were plenty of seals there, and seal oil is worth £17 a ton. If we had any luck, we might pay our expenses with a little to the good by carrying a cargo of oil to Melbourne. But that was not the chief inducement for going. 
What appealed to me more irresistibly as each day went by was the prospect of adding some new knowledge to the history of exploration. I wanted to be a good disciple of Dr. Charcot. I bought a chart of Kogulian, and my brother and I pored over it for hours together. It was a chart like one of those made by the early navigators when Vasco da Gama and Sebastian Cabot and the Spanish and Dutch and English sea dogs were sailing the waters of the world. For much of the coastline of that archipelago was but vaguely outlined and great parts of it had been quite unexplored. Here was a chance for good work and good adventure. My brother and I had already explored the island in imagination long before we had bought our boat. That was now to be done. What was the best boat we could buy for the smallest amount of money? I went to Boulogne, and without telling anybody a word of my plans, searched the shipyards for a good vessel. I saw many fine seaworthy ships awaiting a purchaser, but alas, they were all too costly. I could as soon have bought a mail steamer. There were others which had served for years in the coasting trade and had been scarred and weather-worn in many a storm at sea. I went among these, and with my knife stabbed their timbers and thrust between the planks to test the strength of them. Some of them were rotten and leaky, and it would have been like putting to sea in a ready-made coffin to go out in one of them. But at last, I found a catch, or fishing boat, which seemed to promise well. It was called the Sacré-Cœur de Jésus. It had done years of service, and it had been handed over to a shipbuilder as part payment for a new boat. It was not a beautiful object. The bulwarks were smashed, it had no masts or spars, the deck was rotten and broken, and it was nothing really but an old hull. But I could see that the hull itself was sound, and that the timbers ought to stand the strain of many more years of weather. The more I looked at her, the more I believed that when some money had been spent upon her, and when she was fitted out with new masts and rigging, she would not make us ridiculous or ashamed when we hoisted our flag. Her length of hull was fifty feet, so that you will see we were not about to set out on a journey across the world in a vessel of prodigious size. She was indeed nothing more than an ordinary Boulogne catch of forty-eight tons, but I believed that my scanty means would make her seaworthy in fair weather or foul. So I made my bargain. I need not hide how much I paid for that old hull. People will be amused to know that we crossed two oceans and weathered two years of storms in a boat that we bought for no more than sixty pounds. Of course, we had to spend a good more than that before she was ready for our trip. We had to fit her out with new masts, rigging and sails, an expensive business. We had to put in a new deck and bulwarks, to build new cabin space and strengthen the hold. We also put on board four rowing boats, two of them being light and flat-bottomed for landing in shallow water, and two being heavier rowing boats with keels. Together, we spent something like £600 in making shipshape the Sacré-Cœur de Jésus, which henceforth was to be called the J.B. Charcot, in honour of the famous French explorer with whom I had been in the Antarctic. I look back with pleasure to that work at Boulogne. We were young men, and it was a joyous thing to us to be the sole proprietors of a vessel, and like boys who build their first toy yacht, we took the keenest delight and pride in all the carpentering and shipbuilding work that filled up two months of our time. Finally, when we had put some paint on the hull and fixed up the rigging and hoisted our sails, the J.B. Charcot seemed to us a pretty thing of which we might well be proud. But even then I could not help laughing at the insignificant size of the boat in which I proposed to voyage so far.
I now had to be very busy in provisioning the ship for the expedition and getting the equipment necessary for a sealing trip, for life on a desert island and for a voyage in which we should be many months out of touch with land. All this wanted a great deal of careful thought, for not only our own lives but the lives of those unknown men who were to be our crew depended upon the sound judgment with which we chose our stores. Long ago, I had drawn up a careful list of what I wanted to take, but I soon found out the difference between equipping a Charcot or Shackleton expedition and a modest little venture like my own, for the ideal list was far beyond my purse. I was determined, however, not to make cheapness a virtue, but to buy the best of everything. I know how fatal economy has been in voyages of exploration. I went therefore to Damoy, the well-known dealer in Paris, who has provisioned many expeditions. I take this opportunity of expressing my best thanks to him. He gave me very low prices when I let him into the secret of our proposed adventure and sent back 500 francs when I paid the bill. It is not often that one meets with such generous dealing. As our life for the next two years depended to a great extent upon the stores which we took on board the J.B. Charcot at Boulogne, I think it will be of interest to give some idea of their character. I bought first of all a large quantity of boiled beef in tins and tinned vegetables which included beans, peas and cabbages and carrots cut up into small pieces. We took many cases of ship's biscuits sufficient for six men for two years, a large stock of rice and a quantity of vermicelli which proved to be one of our best supplies as we never grew tired of it though we sickened of the preserved meat. Pemmican for shore journeys, soup tablets, a few delicacies for special occasions like pâté de foie gras, chocolate, dried plums, almonds and raisins, pickles and many cases of tea, coffee and cocoa, and tinned milk, concluded a list of foodstuffs which was cut down to the barest necessities. It is usual in the French merchant service for the sailors to have a daily allowance of rum and wine. In our case, the smallness of the vessel and the length of our journey would make it impossible to carry so many casks of wine and spirit. We therefore took enough wine to last for about five months at the rate of half a litre a day per man and a small quantity of rum in case of sickness. Water, of course, was of the utmost importance and we carried two tons in cement-lined tanks. As will be seen, we were able to replenish these tanks at Madeira and Rio and there was always plenty in Kogulian. Included in the list of general stores were four guns, two double-barreled for small shot, one army rifle of the grass pattern, one double-barreled gun, shooting bullets from one barrel and shot from another, two cameras, one Kodak with films, one camera with plates, chronometer, sounding instruments, theodolite, barometers, thermometers, sextants, other navigating instruments, material for making casks, picks and shovels, carpenter's tools, blasting cartridges, spare sailcloth with needles and twine, axes, furnace and kettles for melting seal blubber, one tent. We had spent most of our money by the time we had obtained these stores, but at the end of two months, after the idea had been first settled, we were happy in having a good little boat and an equipment that was modest but sufficient for a long trip. There had been no trouble in obtaining a crew. As soon as we had begun to be busy in Boulogne, the news had gone round that we were preparing for a voyage of adventure, and many seafaring men and lads came to volunteer for the job. We did not want old men or married men or men who were not prepared to do a great deal of hard work on shore as well as at sea, which is outside the usual contract of French sailors. 
We preferred youth rather than experience, and brave hearts rather than much wisdom. As a matter of fact, we obtained a crew in which both youthful spirit and seamanship were combined, and the bravery of which will never be forgotten by me. I will give a complete list of the crew here. It was not very large, although one among them, La Rose, only joined us later when we were in an English harbour. Henry Rallier de Batte, captain, aged 27. Raymond Rallier de Batte, mate, aged 25, both from Breton. Jean Bonton, boatswain, aged 43, a Basque. Leon Agnet, sailor, aged 22. Eugene Larose, sailor, aged 18. And Louis Esnault, cook, aged 16, all from Normandy. It will be seen that my brother Henry was rated as captain. He was older than I, and therefore I thought he ought to have the position of chief navigating officer, while I was organiser and leader of the expedition. Of the men and lads, I shall have much to say later on, but here it is sufficient just to indicate their characters. Jean Bontemps, for example, was a sailor of the old-fashioned school who had lived at sea for most of the years of his life who had crossed the line a score of times, who was a handyman at all the crafts of seamanship and who had a firm belief in his own way of doing things. Superstitious, hard-headed, slow of speech, he was tremendously strong and absolutely faithful to those in command. We asked no more of him. Agne was a tall, fair fellow who had been away in the cod fisheries off Newfoundland. He had dreamy blue eyes which seemed to see a thousand miles off and his greatest recreation was to play the accordion and sing old Norman songs in a voice that was not unmusical. I found him always intelligent, interested in all the things around him, and a pleasant companion. He and I have had a great many adventures together. We have risked death together. We have spent many days alone together on the grim rocks and in the brooding silence of the island of desolation. I shall always remember Agne as a friend, brave as a lion, true as steel, a good fellow. La Rose, what shall I say? La Rose, too, was faithful and quite fearless, and what was best of all, perhaps, he provided our laughter. Even now I cry every time I think of La Rose, with his puffed-out cheeks and his enormous, insatiable, all-devouring appetite. He was the comedy man of the J.B. Charcot, and I think a little later on my readers will like to follow his adventures in search of food. Louis Esno was the cook. Did I say cook? Well, he could fry fish, and he certainly broke all our plates, and in his galley on deck there was always a great smell. Yes, he was our cook, but I ate the meals he had prepared with blind confidence and without thinking of all the dark mysteries that had gone before. But he did his best, poor lad, and worked hard and was brave also, and I am grateful to him. Well, there we were then, with our little ship and our stores and our crew, and towards the end of September 1907, we were ready to start on our adventures. By some means or another, the object of our expedition had leaked out, but the first news of it was given to the general public by a two-column article in Le Matin. Interest and curiosity were aroused, and a few days before we got away, numbers of people swarmed on board to have a look at the little catch, which was going across the world. We were laughed at by a good deal. Our visitors cried, Seal and Sapristi! and lifted up their eyes and their hands in wonder, and were good enough to say that we were going to our deaths, but wished us bon voyage all the same. It was all very droll. Our friends, however, 
were very generous. Monsieur Fournet, a Boulogne shipowner, lent us a tug which took us out to the harbour and carried a number of shipowners who came to see us off. It was at 6am on the morning of the 22nd of September 1907 that we hoisted sail and flew the French flag. Crowds of people were on the quayside and gave us parting cheers, and as my brother and I stood at the helm, we felt very proud and happy. After our months of hard work in planning and organising, it was good now to stand on our own little boat, to see our sails bellying out in a good breeze, to hear the wash of the water along our sides, to see the sunlight glancing on the waves, and to be, at last, on our way to the great venture which had been in my dreams so long. As yet, however, we did not leave the shores of France. We ran round to Cherbourg, where the French Minister of Marine generously lent us a number of navigating instruments, thereby acknowledging that our little vessel was bound for a serious scientific expedition worthy of official recognition, instead of being merely out for the adventure and seal hunting. From Cherbourg, I made a train journey to Paris to say goodbye to my parents. All such partings leave one a little sad and serious, and in that family farewell there was the thought that we might never meet again on this side of the grave. But, after all, that thought does not affect a family of sailors too much. The risks of a seafaring life are accepted as a matter of course. My father and mother had said goodbye to their sons many times before, and there was no reason to be miserable or melancholy on this occasion. In spite of my father's regret that we had not followed the family traditions and joined the French Navy, I think he was glad that we were engaged in a venture in which, perhaps, we might gain a little honour. He wished us good luck, and my mother gave me her blessing, and I knew the prayers of that good woman would follow me across the world. I went back to Cherbourg with a new source of courage and hope, and from that port we sailed on the 13th of October. I chose that day deliberately to prove that I was free from superstition, and I remembered that Nansen had once started on Friday the 13th for the same reason, and without those awful results which ought to have attended him, if old sailors' tales could be believed. As we left the coast, all of us on board that little boat took a long, last look at the land we loved so well. We were to pass through many storms and many perils before any of us would see the shores of France again. Yet, we were not dispirited at the thought. We were all bachelors, and we left no weeping wives and children behind. Hope was in front of us, and a thousand adventures called to us down the wind. My brother and I were young enough to go gaily into the heart of the unknown, whatever luck or ill luck might be lurking there. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, 
get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.